Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Koreshans believed that the Earth was hollow and that humans lived on the concave inside surface of it. They theorised that the moon and stars, and indeed the rest of the universe, was contained within. On the outside, a void. When they formed the utopian community in Estero, Florida, that they called the Koreshan Unity Settlement, a common greeting of one member to another was, We live inside. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Today we're talking about a sect that had its heyday in the late 1800s and had some pretty peculiar beliefs. That said, the flat earthers of today prove that these kinds of beliefs aren't necessarily a thing of the past. This group was suggested by Jim Goodluck of the Forgotten News podcast, so thanks Jim for bringing it to my attention. Cyrus Reed Teed was the second of eight children, born to parents Jessie and Sarah Ann, on the 18th of October, 1839, in Delaware County, New York. Oliver Tuttle, his maternal grandfather, was a Baptist minister, and Cyrus's family hoped he'd follow in his footsteps. Instead, Cyrus quit school at the age of 11 to work on a canal towpath, which was a tough slog. It involved walking 30 miles a day, working very hard, and being treated like an adult, except when it came to pay, which at $8 a month was one-third of the men's. Today's equivalent is around $245 American dollars. This experience was said to give Cyrus a great distaste for capitalism, and afterwards he decided to follow his uncle, Dr. Samuel F. Teed, into medicine. Cyrus was known to be a charismatic speaker from a young age, which was a trait that was admired and encouraged at a time when entertainment, education and ideas were often spread via the spoken word. In 1859, he married his second cousin, Fidelia or Delia Rowe, who was 16 at the time, and 10 months later they had a son who they named Douglas Arthur. In 1862, the family moved to Brooklyn, New York, 
and Cyrus didn't hesitate in signing up to fight in the Civil War. While he actually served as a corporal, his followers would later believe that Cyrus was a medic during the war, and he didn't try to correct them. He would also share a story about his findings that the wounded who had faith in a higher power recovered more quickly than those without. His time in the army was cut short, however, as the following year, while on the march in Virginia, Cyrus's left leg became partially paralysed as a result of sunstroke, and he was discharged. He would go on to complete his medical studies at the Eclectic Medical College of the City of New York, from which he graduated in 1868. Eclectic medicine was popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and was a branch of American medicine that used botanical remedies and physical therapies in response to some of the more extreme practices of the time, like mercury-based remedies, bloodletting and purges. The branch was an alternative to the path of Cyrus's allopathic physician uncle, who he'd originally studied under, and from here it's apparent that Cyrus was open to more unconventional ideas. Upon completing his studies, Cyrus returned his family to Utica, New York, and opened up a practice with his uncle. Outside the practice, they hung a sign that said, He who deals out poison deals out death. Apparently the floor beneath their business housed a bar, and the sign caused some amusement there. Cyrus continued on his unconventional path by setting up a laboratory in which he conducted many experiments, including attempts at alchemy, and according to the Koreshian story, a booklet produced from the Koreshian archives by Sarah Weber Ray, he was interested in changing the states of matter and energy, and specifically searching for a way to bring about the transmutation of humans from a physical to an energy state in order to achieve eternal life. It was in this lab, in 1869, that Cyrus claimed he received a message from God. Some say that what Cyrus would call his illumination was the result of an electric shock, but that's difficult to prove. Cyrus himself said an exquisitely beautiful angel appeared before him, and she imparted to him a few key messages. Again, according to the Koreshian story, these included that The universe is a hollow globe, eternally and perpetually renewing itself by virtue of involution and evolution, and all life exists on its inner concave surface. God being perfect is both male and female. Reincarnation is the central law of life. The Bible is the best written expression of the divine mind, but is written symbolically. The symbolism must be interpreted by a prophet who would appear in every age in the context of that age. Man lives best by communal principles, and the Koreshian form of socialism would include the elimination of money power and wage slavery. Equity, not equality, is a natural law for women as for men. There is no equality, and to say any two people are equal is merely trying to force uniformity. There was more, but for now some would remain beyond the understanding of, quote, the ordinary minds of mortals. The angels' messages would form the core of what was to become Koreshanity. The main takeaway was that Cyrus Teed was the seventh in a line of prophets of which Jesus had been sixth. His belief that the earth is hollow, and that we all live on its concave inner surface, he termed cellular cosmogony. 
Cyrus's theories in this area diverged from earlier theories about a hollow Earth, such as that put forward by astronomer Edmund Halley in the 17th century, in that he was first to suggest that we live on the inner surface of said hollow Earth. It can't be said that Cyrus's ideas caught on right away. His father was known to disapprove of them, and he didn't accept his son as the next messiah. Over the next few years, Cyrus and his family moved around a fair bit as he tried to spread his messages and gain a following. His focus on this new mission wasn't doing much good for his medical practice, and some say he became known as the Crazy Doctor. Cyrus and a colleague, Dr Andrews, visited the Harmony Society in Economy, Pennsylvania in 1873, and it could be assumed that he took away some ideas from the communal and celibate model of living that they found there. Around this time, Delia's health began to fail. After a few more moves, Cyrus also spent some time as a member of the North Family of Shakers in Lebanon, New York, for a number of months from 1878, gaining some further experiences of communal living. In 1880, Cyrus decided to form a communal home of his own, and the first members were his parents, one of his brothers and two of his sisters, a brother-in-law, a married couple and three other women. The communal home didn't stretch to looking after his wife Delia, however, who had become an invalid by this stage from her tuberculosis, and she and their son Douglas went to live with her sister instead. Journalist Lynn Milner wrote a book about the Coretians entitled The Allure of Immortality, An American Cult, a Florida Swamp and a Renegade Prophet, published by the University Press of Florida in 2015. With five years of detailed research into Cyrus Teed and his followers behind her, including reading much of the archival material that's still available today, Lynn was kind enough to speak to me about some of her findings. It seems that it wasn't just Delia's health that resulted in Cyrus casting his wife and son aside. Apparently she had similar doubts about Cyrus's God-given mission as his father did. She didn't, he said he wrote in one letter that she was having trouble accepting him as the, you know, religious leader that he was. And so I think he just said, you know, I'm just going to kind of go it alone here because she was holding him back. On August 9th, 1884, a Mrs. Charles Cobb and her mother, Mrs. Willis, sued Cyrus, accusing him of obtaining money from them by deception, in that he'd claimed to be the second Christ. Cyrus returned the sum in question and the matter was dropped. In her book, Lynn Milner describes Cyrus as, quote, probably insane, certainly narcissistic. And I asked her how she had come to this conclusion. I wanted to find how God complex was defined in his day, and a guy named Ernest Jones, who was actually Freud's biographer, um, wrote about the term God complex. And he, he basically, in his chapter, he outlined all of the characteristics that someone with the God complex would have. And also, Teed, I think, was bipolar. There's some evidence about that. But so I went, I went down and looked at the God complex and, and, and looked at how Ernest Jones had, had written about it. And Teed met every characteristic down to down to the detail that sometimes the person even believes in his own planet 
So once I had compared him to the God complex of his day, and I talked to a psychiatrist and said, what would the God complex be called? And he told me narcissistic personality disorder. And then I, I described for the psychiatrist all of Teed's kind of behaviors, right? And the psychiatrist confirmed that, oh, yes, no question <laughs> that this guy was narcissistic. It had now been over 15 years since Cyrus's illumination and revelation that he was a prophet. He was in his mid-40s and things hadn't really been going so well for him. But it seems he was a determined man. Things started to look up in 1886, when a contact from New York invited Cyrus to speak at the National Association of Mental Sciences upcoming convention in Chicago. His appearance there was well received and the city became his new home. A number of communal living groups were formed. Cyrus stayed in touch with the North family of Shakers and the Harmony Society, and was also in contact with the Brotherhood of the New Life in California. In November 1889, Cyrus began publishing a newspaper called The Flaming Sword, which I understand had previously been known as The Guiding Star. It was in 1891 that Cyrus took on the name Koresh, the Hebrew version of his own name, which means shepherd. And by 1892, the Koreshans had rented 8.5 acres of land in Washington Heights, Illinois, with a mansion and seven cottages for their now 110-strong community to live on. They named this community Beth Ofra, and 83 of the 110 who lived there were women. The Koreshan unity would remain female-dominated to the end. Lynn Milner points out that there were plenty of existing groups that Cyrus could have joined with his followers, but he was very set on leading his own. They were in Chicago when Jane Addams was building her settlement houses. You know, there were people really doing important social reform, and the Koreshans could have chosen that, but they chose the opposite, which was this kind of sweet thought that they could isolate and be the example for people, you know, and... And that wasn't going to go anywhere, but it helped Teed stay in control. You know, it served him because that he could keep them isolated. He wasn't, he wasn't going to put on the corduroys and, and help build houses, you know, because then he's one of the common people and he had to, part of who he was, was holding himself up and being this messiah. So the second he joined society and worked for social reform, that just wasn't his bag, you know, because then he couldn't be God. But in this society, he could be. He didn't really care about social reform, but his followers sort of bought this idea that by following him and isolating themselves that they could they could do good in the world. In spite of his emphasis on celibacy, there were persistent rumours throughout the existence of the Koreshan Unity Group that this may not necessarily have been applied so strictly to Cyrus himself. I asked Lynn Milner what she had found out about these rumours. You know, I didn't find any smoking gun in terms of like a picture of him with, you know, in bed or anything like that. But there were so many, you know, you read enough accounts of jilted husbands that kind of line up and it's kind of hard to argue with 
You know, there was account after account after account that he was a philanderer. And maybe he wasn't. And when I look at his early letters in the late 1800s to his best friend back in Binghamton, he seemed to be all about celibacy. But that might have changed as he got followers, you know, he might have changed. And there's plenty of evidence that a lot of women found him attractive and wanted to be his favorite. One of the things that he would tell women is that this woman, you know, you are my Minerva and to to bring her in and make her feel special. And then she would be offended when another woman was his Minerva. So it seems that there was evidence that he was a philanderer, but I couldn't nail it down. And certainly he was an inveterate flirt. He understood the power that he had, especially over women. There were a number of court cases brought against Cyrus over the next few years, including charges that he had alienated men from the affections of their wives and committed adultery. While the cases were thrown out, the press was giving Cyrus a hard time and portraying him as a womanizer. It's hard to say whether or not this was true, but it's certainly possible that men were upset about their wives leaving them for a community that gave them greater importance as gender equals. Either way, it seems that the Coretians became somewhat persecuted in Illinois, so when they heard about some land for sale in Florida, Cyrus and two of his followers, Annie Ordway and Bertheldean Boomer, went to take a look. It proved out of their budget, but Cyrus left a copy of the Flaming Sword at the post office. A Mr. Gustav Damkola came across it there and invited Cyrus back. The trip eventuated in Gustav selling 320 acres of his land on the Estero River to the Coretians, transferring the title on November 19, 1894. About the move to Estero and the building of their isolated society, Lynn Milner says, He did it in part to get away from the husbands who were suing him, Any and the newspapers, of course, were coming after him. That was my favourite part, is that the journalists were just having a heyday, because he was just... This guy was catnip for them. Cyrus did manage to spin the bad press quite well internally, however. When there was negative press, at least he was it, it was press. You know, the old saying, bad publicity, good publicity, whatever, as long as they spell your name right. He felt like the newspapers were giving him publicity and also that their persecution was part of the part of the deal. All devout followers are persecuted, right? Jesus was persecuted. So that was proof. So he had this really odd sense of reasoning that anything bad that happened, he would tell his followers this is good for the movement. Annie Ordway, who had been on the original trip to Florida with Cyrus, was a key supporter of Koreshanity and was supposedly Cyrus's equal in leading the belief system. There were rumours that she was also his mistress, but today they're impossible to verify. She later changed her name to Victoria Gracia and was rechristened as such. About Annie slash Victoria, Lynn Milner says there was much contention within the sect. The woman that he quote-unquote chose, right, was sort of reviled by the other women in the group. And after he died, she, she ran off and within four months she had married the Koreshian dentist. So she... <laughs> that tells you how committed she was to him. She was sort of, she might have been the ultimate um, huckster. 
I asked in what ways the other Koreshian women behaved towards Annie slash Victoria. Attempts to shoot her down and say that she had taken drugs at one point and, you know, because they knew that Teed was anti-drug and they tried to use her as a wedge between Teed and his best friend and it was just a mess. It was very junior high. In 1897, Ulysses Grant Morrow, who had joined the Koreshians in Chicago, undertook to prove the concave earth theory in what would become known as the Naples experiment. Ulysses endeavoured to build a rigid, straight-lined physical instrument that he could measure against a water surface. By joining together 12-foot-long, 4-feet-wide segments that he described as double T-squares, made of mahogany and braced by steel bars, he created an extendable contraption that he called a rectilineator. Over a few months, members constructed 2.5 miles of adjoining segments. The next portion was completed with poles, and the findings were that the line met the water at just over four miles, proof that the earth had curved upwards. Here's a quote from the pen of Dr. Cyrus Teed in an issue of The Flaming Sword dated 31st of December 1897 and entitled Koreshian Astronomical Facts versus Absurd Hypotheses. The Copernican system of astronomy, built upon an hypothesis, seems to satisfy the minds which will not and cannot think. The Koreshian astronomy has its foundation on the rock, We have presented an experimental fact, the result of invention, months of careful labour by the geodetic staff of the Koreshian unity, thus furnishing unquestionable proof of the cellular cosmogony advocated by the discoverer for the last nearly 30 years. Ulysses detailed the experiment and its conclusions in great depth for the publication he co-authored in 1898 with Cyrus under the name Koresh, entitled The Cellular Cosmogony. There are a few elements to cellular cosmogony that are worth examining, and I'd highly recommend checking out the pictures of some of the diagrams and working models that Cyrus put together to demonstrate his belief system. So the reason we can't see across to the other side of the Earth within this hollow globe is because of the thick atmosphere. Then the Sun is a rotating electromagnetic battery that is half light, half dark, and we can't see it directly. What we see are its rays of light refracted and, quote, focalising. When the sun rotates, its dark side emits numerous rays of light that are again refracted and focalise as the stars. Sent outwards from the sun are gravic rays that provide the force we usually understand as gravity. There's quite a lot more detail that I won't go into, but it seems that Cyrus had an explanation for many of the questions his theories elicited and perhaps only came up with each one off the back of some fairly specific criticisms. There's a 2015 podcast called Concave Earth Sessions, with five episodes on Podomatic, and episode two has an interesting discussion questioning how flat earthers can be so resistant to the reality of a concave earth. One of the modern-day believers involved with this podcast 
tried to reproduce Cyrus and Ulysses' rectilinear experiment and told Lynn Milner about his findings. He tried to prove the concave earth theory by going to Padre Island, which is a straight stretch of land. It's actually straighter than Naples Beach, where the Corrections tested their theory. And he recreated their um, the Corrections rectilineator, measured Padre Island, and um, he wasn't able to do the test. And he was finding inaccuracies. And he, he contacted me and he says, what I've discovered was it is impossible that they could have proved it using that equipment. It's just impossible to get exact measurements, even with today's advanced technology. I also went down a bit of a rabbit hole on YouTube and found a number of videos claiming to prove similar beliefs in this area to those espoused by Cyrus Teed. They've had many thousands of views all up, so I'd say it's ill-advised to assume that this kind of ideology wouldn't have had the appeal in today's better-educated world. By 1903, all of the Chicago Corrections had made the move to Estero, and the community was thriving with about 200 residents. Members considered this settlement to be their new Jerusalem and the capital of the Correction system, and they toiled hard to make it worthy, often having given up a much more comfortable life for one of constant hard work. For their work, they received labour credit rather than monetary payment, and their units of labour could be exchanged at the Koreshan stores. New members handed over their belongings when they joined. Cellular cosmogony was at the centre of their belief system, and Cyrus also promoted the idea of an impending apocalypse. Here's Lynn Milner. Yeah, he had this fantasy that there would be an, you know, an end time and that his people would sort of rise above and stand on a mountain, you know, and be above it all. There were essentially different levels of membership. If you joined the religious order, you lived a celibate life within the settlement. Men and women lived in separate housing, and celibacy was intended to be an equaliser in some ways, circumventing one of the original sins which they believed to be a woman's desire for a man. If you were in the cooperative order, however, you could live outside the settlement and you didn't have to be celibate. You could stay with your family, but still work in Koreshian businesses. These included a boat works, a print shop, a sawmill, a utilities and electrical works, and a number of other businesses. Thomas Edison and Henry Ford were known to have visited the community at some time around this period. The Flaming Sword newspaper circulated weekly with words from the pen of Cyrus, new ideas, reinforcement of older ones, and rebuttals of critics. They were also talking to the government in Honduras about acquiring 200,000 acres there for a colony. There was a Koreshian Unity School, and there was also leisure time, with music and art a welcome pursuit, including performances of plays and a community orchestra. I asked Lynn Milner about her thoughts as to whether the Koreshian Unity Settlement were generally harmless. Harmless, yes. I mean, there were a lot of people who suffered, people who joined the group who suffered. But in terms of harmless to outsiders, yeah, I do. I think so. And about those who suffered within? There were many, many accounts of, of their being hungry at times. 
They were in Chicago without heat for a stretch uh, one winter. So physical, physical suffering because of a lack of money. And then once they were in Florida, of course, they were <laughs> suffering from everything you would suffer from if you're trying to build a you know, city in a jungle. They had typhoid and a, a few of the younger girls died of typhoid until they could get their wells dug. You know, they came down and very few of them had experience building. And so they, <laughs> they didn't really know what they were doing. So, yeah, I think that they there was a lot of suffering. And then, of course, um, whenever anyone defected, there was plenty of complaining. You know, they would either write to Teed and tell him that he was a terrible person or they would write to the newspaper more often and and say that Teed had misbehaved in some way, that he uh, caused the group to suffer financially, that he took advantage of the women that he ate well when they didn't, when his followers didn't, that he traveled well when they were kind of stuck in a stereo and miserable. So there was there was plenty of evidence that, that it wasn't all lollipops and sunshine. I also put to Lynn the three criteria that I use for this podcast to define a cult. Here are her thoughts about how they relate to Cyrus Teed and the Koresh unity. Certainly he was charismatic as all get out and he did control his members. You know, it wasn't so much that they were secretive as they they believed that instead of effecting social reform, uh, from within, they were going to remove themselves and provide an example of how a utopian uh, a society could work. So in that sense, they were disengaged with the world in this odd way. And I think that served Cyrus Teed very well, um, because then he was able to keep everyone sort of, you know, corralled in this, in this place. They mixed in society but mainly they were together in, uh, in isolation. So yeah, so I, I do think they were a cult, maybe not as, as sinister as, as some cults that you think of today, but I, I do think they meet your, um, your criteria. And whether Cyrus was intentionally manipulative for personal gain, or if he really believed the things that he was preaching? I think he was a person of great contradiction, Without question, he benefited from this communist society. You know, people contributed their all of their belongings. They surrendered over to the unity when they joined, and he benefited from that. But at the same time, yeah, he thought that, you know, he tied in communism to his religious beliefs. And I don't know. I went back and forth, and ultimately in writing the book, I wanted the reader to decide. I mean, now today I'm talking to you, and I'm thinking— Oh, yeah, he was a total huckster, you know, but but other days I would be like, ah, you know, I'd read those letters from 1878 to his friend. And I was like, no, this is a crazy guy who really believes that this is the way to be.
While their land ambitions grew, the Koreshans' numbers began to decline. Having a focus on celibacy was causing some issues when it meant recruitment rather than procreation as what the utopian society's future depended upon. And in 1904, things started to get less friendly with neighbouring communities around Fort Myers. This was the year that Cyrus incorporated Estero, which meant that they became eligible to receive a portion of the area's taxes. The city of Fort Myers resented that they would lose out on the road taxes as a result. Cyrus also started to get more political and formed the Progressive Liberty Party, or PLP, with some other local groups. The Koreshans hadn't been able to stand as Democrats due to having voted for Roosevelt and formed the PLP in response to their being shut out. Politically, they didn't have a huge amount of success, and the move mainly brought about suspicions amongst their neighbours, who were perhaps happy enough with the Koreshans remaining in their own utopian settlement, but didn't fancy their ideas spreading any further. On October 13, 1906, there was an altercation between a Fort Myers local and a Koreshan County Commissioner candidate. Apparently Cyrus tried to step in and decided the best approach would be to start preaching. It seems that he may have misjudged this, and was punched in the face by the local. The town marshal then arrested three men, including Cyrus, and in the process also hit him in the face. The whole incident increased the overall tensions between the Koreshans and the surrounding communities, and many Koreshans also blamed it for Cyrus's declining health over the next two years. Whether or not it was directly related, his health did indeed decline from here, and on the 22nd of December 1908, Cyrus Teed passed away. He was 69 years old. His followers remained steadfast in their belief in their Messiah, and placed his body in a bathtub to watch over it and await his resurrection. Lynn Milner again. After he died and they were keeping watch over his body for those five days, the health department did intervene and they were, the Koreshans were becoming much more private and asking that people not send letters through the regular post because they were afraid of them being intercepted and they were afraid, I think, of the health department intervening in some kind of more forceful way. And then his body started to decompose and be difficult to be in a room with. And I think they, they realized, okay, we'll, we'll face their demands, but he'll resurrect. You know, they even left a note in the corner of his tomb saying, you know, these, these walls can't hold him. The note sealed with Cyrus in his tomb read, quote, In compliance with the law and only for such reason, the body of Cyrus R. Teed is placed in this stone vault. We, the disciples of Koresh, shepherd, stone of Israel, know that this sepulchre cannot hold his body, for he will overcome death, and in his immortal body will rise triumphant from the tomb. Cyrus's tomb was watched over for the next 13 years, and whilst numbers at the Koreshan Unity Settlement dwindled, there were still some awaiting his resurrection. Then on the 23rd of October, 1921, a hurricane washed the tomb out to sea. The body was never recovered, and a headstone reading Cyrus Shepherd Stone of Israel 
was the only thing that remained. If you wondered whatever happened to Cyrus's abandoned wife and son, Delia passed away in 1885, and Douglas was taken in by a Mrs. Streeter. She was able to provide him with much more support than his father did, and even paid for him to go to Italy and study art. Douglas Teed became a renowned painter, and Lynn Milner told me that towards the end of his father's life, Douglas came to visit the Koreshian Unity Settlement. Later, his son came back into the picture, and they thought they were making peace, but then his son was an artist of some note, and he thought that he had donated some art to the art hall in Ostero. It turns out it was just on loan, or that Douglas expected payment, and so Douglas ended up suing his father. I don't know if he sued him or if he just made very wrote some very threatening letters, but claiming that Teed owed him some serious money for the art. So they didn't. They had a very rocky relationship. It seems that Douglas did sue the Koreshian Unity, and a full settlement was made out of court the same year that Cyrus Teed passed away. Over the three decades following Cyrus's death, the core number of Koreshians still living in Estero was a few dozen at most. In 1930, the community had a brief rejuvenation under the influence of a newly arrived member named Hedwig Michelle who had fled Nazi Germany. She added a gas station, a Western Union, and a restaurant to the settlement. But with the other members mostly elderly already when she arrived, by 1960 membership was down to just four people. In 1961, Hedwig gifted the land to the state of Florida on condition that they could remain living there, and that she work with them to retain some of the history of the Koreshian Utopia. Some of the buildings were preserved, and these became the Koreshian Unity Settlement Historic District, recognised by the National Register of Historic Places in 1976, with the surrounding area run as a national park. Hedwig, known as the Last Koreshian, lived up until her death in the building known as the Planetary Court, and passed away in 1982. The settlement area is now known as the Koreshian State Historic Site, and it's open to the public. You can visit some of the original settlement buildings, including Teed House, and you can see a hollow earth model, some of the community's original signage, and even a piece of the rectilineator there. It's definitely on my travel list. asked Lynn Milner whether there were any lessons she thought we could take from the Koreshians today. To me, the most newsy things right now are that there are spooky similarities between Cyrus Teed and Donald Trump. And then the other thing is that uh, what it tells us more importantly, I think, is what it tells us about ourselves, which is it's, it's easy to look at the Koreshians and say, you know, how could these people who were educated, who took the time to learn Latin and perform Shakespeare, and they had an orchestra, you know, how could they believe the earth was hollow and that we lived inside of it? Well, guess what? We are all 
living inside of bubbles. We're all sort of, we formed these tribes based on our beliefs. So it's a metaphor. We don't believe that we live inside of a hollow earth, but but we totally live inside of our own bubbles and we reject things, you know, especially today. We, are, we just cling on to our beliefs in the face of evidence to the contrary, you know, and it's, it's just striking how similar uh, we are today to the, how the Koreshans were then. Today, Estero exists as an independent village and has done since residents voted for this in 2014. That, perhaps, is one of the few things it has in common with its forerunners. Down the road from the Koreshan State Historic Site, the two huge shopping malls and gated communities stand in stark contrast to the cashless society that Cyrus Teed had once imagined over a hundred years before. thanks to Lynn Milner for her fascinating contributions to this episode. If you found the Koreshans interesting and would like to know more, I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of her book, The Allure of Immortality, An American Cult, A Florida Swamp and a Renegade Prophet, which you can find via her website, lynnmilner.com, which is l-y-n-m-i-l-l-n-e-r.com. And that link, along with her Facebook page, will be on the episode website at ltaspod.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please think to mention it to family or friends who may be interested, or give us a social media shout-out. You can also support the podcast's creation with a small monthly donation at patreon.com slash ltaspod. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me again next month. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.